Good morning, good night, good evening, everybody, whenever you're hearing our first phone news episode. Let me please briefly introduce you what is this podcast about. We'll be talking about medical nutrition with first-level opinion leaders in the field. We'll be also discussing the latest scientific publications and hot topics in clinical nutrition. This series of episodes is sponsored by Fontactif, a premium clinical nutrition brand. Let me please introduce you our first guest. It is our honor to have with us today Professor Stefan Schneider. He heads the Nutrition Support Unit of the Department of Gastroenterology and Nutrition of Larcher University Hospital in Nice. Let me please take care because Professor Schneider's CV is uh, really long. And before I explain you all the role he's been doing in the COVID, let me tell you that he's also the Vice President of the French-speaking Society of Clinical Nutrition and Metabolism and an ESPEN Council member. Good evening, Stefan. Hello, Enric. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How about you? Fine, too. Very happy to be with this, with our first episode and, and to have you on board with this. I wanted to start talking about your role in, during the pandemic in, in Nice, because I know you've been uh, really involved with the council and, and all the strategy to prevent malnutrition. Can you explain me a bit how was this experience? Well, besides my, my role in the hospital with my patients, the, the old ones and the new ones, I was asked by the mayor of the city to, to work on a project that he had, which related to isolated older people with very low revenues who were home during the lockdown and who could not get the required uh, staple foods. And so he thought about giving them a food basket, not only food, actually, but also the basics for hygiene, for example, but food, including fruits and vegetables. And he asked me to think about what should be in this food basket. And I thought about it, and then we ended up giving them, um, you know, sardines, rich in fats and omega-3 fatty acids, animal and vegetable proteins, say powdered milk, for example, chickpeas, lentils. And the idea was to give for free, of course, through the different associations, this food basket to uh, roughly 1,000 elderly people in the city. And we ended up uh, distributing a total of roughly 20,000 food baskets. So at the same time, it was a, a huge success, but that's also pretty worrying should the virus persist because that means that many people, especially fragile people like uh, in this age category, will require help. And this is a very developed country. This is a rich city in a developed country. And you can imagine the consequences in poorer countries. Yes. This is what I wanted to ask you about, and it's been discussing recently, that to what extent are we prepared, either in here in Europe and also developed countries, for a potential second wave and a strong, severe second wave? Well, I think I will speak like most politicians by saying, yes, we are ready. But I think we have good arguments to say so. 
The thing is that you remember when it started, everybody was talking about obese people. Oh, obese people are at risk of developing a more severe form of the disease. And that was true, still is. Nobody was talking about malnutrition because, I mean, for a start, when you looked at the BMIs in the mostly Chinese studies, uh, when you looked at the BMIs, BMIs of patients developing severe forms of the disease uh, were not lower than the other ones. On the contrary, they were higher. And so based on the BMI, malnutrition did not seem to play a role. But you need to consider the fact that nobody, no study where patients asked about their weight loss. And you know well, and especially uh, uh, since the, the GLIM criteria for malnutrition, you know that weight loss is a hugely important factor to take into account to diagnose malnutrition. And I'm not talking about fat-free mass index of our appendicular skeletal muscle mass index that were never measured. So in the beginning, nobody cared about malnutrition. And then, along with the um, development of the epidemic, what happened is that we all noticed that patients developing mild and, most importantly, severe forms of the disease were developing malnutrition. They were losing a lot of weight, really a huge wasting syndrome, and along with the consequences. And so they started to think, oh, maybe we should think about refeeding these patients. And that wasn't very easy, you know, because once a very contagious patient has been admitted, nobody wants to enter the room more than once a day. So these are decisions you need to take from the patient's admission to the ward. And so I would say that minds changed along with the epidemic. And at the end of the first wave for France, for example, I know that the case, that's the case for, for most countries, people were really aware of the nutritional consequences of the infection. And so protocols were developed based on guidelines and position papers. ESPEN published one, the French Society published one, many societies published guidelines uh, about uh, nutrition supporting COVID-19 patients. And so that's why I think that we'll be ready for, uh, for the relapse or for the second wave. Yeah, as you some, I heard in some of your webinars, uh, we were not prepared for the first one and here we are. So, yeah, we cannot be uh, pessimistic. You were talking about, uh, yeah, the decisions of you have to make uh, when entering the room because you don't want to be there often for obvious reason. I want to ask you about uh, dysphagia, uh, this complication we, we observed and related to nutrition. How is the ESPEN uh, recommending to deal with, with this uh, swelling disorder in this kind of patient? That's actually not uh, specific to COVID-19. What is specific is that patients admitted to the ICU stay a long time there and intubation lasts several days or weeks. And the longer intubation is, the higher the risk of dysphagia when the tube is removed. And so many patients who improved and were able to be extubated at dysphagia. And so, well, the consequence is, of course, to adapt 
the texture of food and the texture of oral nutritional supplements for these patients. So have you noticed uh, an increase in, in thickener consumption in your hospitals? Well, we haven't measured it. I haven't got access to the orders uh, made. But yeah, from what I heard, they were using more thickeners than usual. So we were talking about the patient in the hospital of its follow-up, but you were also mentioning the difficulties to follow up patients because they are not uh, attending their their meetings with doctors. I want to ask you about the the role of telemedicine and, and nutrition. How is this field going to develop? I think that uh, telemedicine was hugely important at the peak of the epidemic because that allowed us, it's so much better, you know, than a simple phone call. I think looking someone in the eye uh, means a lot and it's reassuring both for the doctor and for the patient. What happened also is that the home care providers were also in contact. They were also limited in their ability to visit patients. And so it was useful for them to use uh, video transmission with the patient. So that was really huge help. Now, everybody believed that it was there to last. But what we see now is a really a decrease in the percent. Uh, I mean, we were up to 100% of patients seen on video. And now we're down to maybe 5% because patients prefer to come and we prefer to see patients. Now, of course, if we need to limit the um, outpatient clinic visits, once again, of course, we'll move back to, uh, to telemedicine. That was a huge help. I'm not that sure that it's there to stay as a major uh, means of consulting. You said also that there was a delay in the diagnosis of patients. How does this has impact their nutritional status, the delay in the diagnosis? Fortunately, we haven't seen Many patients, well, actually, I've seen one just this week, who was in a nursing home and was referred to us and who should have been referred to us two months before. Severe malnutrition in a patient with uh, uh, an evolved Parkinson's disease. But otherwise, it's difficult to say now about, say, cancer diagnoses that were made too late. Mm-hmm. And you know that one of the factors influencing malnutrition in cancer patients is the uh, the advanced stage of the disease. And the longer you wait before you make the diagnosis, the more advanced the disease is. So we could expect to see more malnourished patients. That's not my feeling. It's two months since the lockdown was lifted in France. This is not a feeling I have. Maybe... Maybe I will have a more precise feeling and more data in a couple of months. Yeah, you think that maybe in the future months some some publications or articles might be published in these in these regards. Exactly, because what I know is that they are, and in France we are, in many places they are collecting data on the nutritional status of patients on admission, on discharge, and then one, two, three, up to six months or even 12 months later. This, we're starting to see these publications, especially from China, 
there are now at least three publications I'm aware of that describe the nutritional status of hospitalized COVID-19 patients with severe forms of the disease. And let me tell you, their nutritional status is bad. Mm-hmm. I see. So, uh, you know, I've been attending to, to all your webinars during these months, and uh, I've tried to collect uh, some of the most frequent asked questions. People were guessing about uh, vitamin deficiency. Vitamin D came up many times. What is your final recommendation on vitamin supplementation? The problem with micronutrients is that every study in every kind of disease in nutrition has showed that if you have a normal status, supplementing patients doesn't help and may even make things worse. For COVID-19 patients, well, we now have a huge body of evidence to suggest that vitamin D deficiency is associated with more severe forms of the disease. Not to say there is a causality, but there is an association. Thing is that in most countries, I would say in all countries, measuring vitamin D levels costs a lot more than giving vitamin D. So now the recommendations are to supplement COVID-19 patients with vitamin D. That's not true for all the other vitamins, to my knowledge. Maybe something will come up, but to this day, I'm not aware of, uh, of such a study. Yeah, nowadays, S-Pen is only positioning, of course, to avoid um, deficiencies, right? Exactly. And another question that came frequently was, how long does the, the loss of taste uh, remain? And I want to add a, a question on this. How do you think is the impact on this taste loss to treatment adherence to oral nutritional supplements? How this can affect? Well, I think that once again, we are too close to the epidemic to give a precise figure about the duration of the loss of taste and smell. I have seen patients who recovered it over a couple of weeks. But there is a certain percentage, people say up to 10, 15%, who keep it on the long run. And we don't know when it's going to get better. So if you want patients to maintain or recover the, um, a regular food intake, you need to focus on taste and smell. Uh, so the idea would be to provide foods and supplements with more marked taste, you know, more spicy stuff, for example, more spicy food, say ginger in some ONS, and uh, that would be, uh, that's the global ID. And also maybe texture, some texture innovations. Of course, you're right. There is, because texture will also influence the duration of contact with the, of the food with the taste buds. Uh, but I'm not aware of anything that may support a specific position saying, yeah, you need to change the texture in such patients. Thank you. And uh, because it's not everything going to be um, about COVID, but if you want to share, before we move to other topic, any learning you, you, you want to share, what's been the, the most important learning you've made during this crisis? 
for me, the most important thing was to be able to convince colleagues, especially infectious disease specialists, of the importance of nutritional support. There were not real believers before the epidemic, and now all of them are believers. And let me tell you, I get phone calls on a very regular basis now from people who never bothered to call me before telling me, oh, my patient is malnourished. This is not a COVID patient, by the way. My patient is malnourished. Maybe uh, maybe you should, uh, you sh- this patient should be transferred to your department uh, uh, for refeeding. And so that's, for me, that's a big victory. Yeah, that's good news to see uh, clinical nutrition playing its role in in this crisis and, and see people really give the value that it's worth for medical nutrition. So I wanted to ask you in, in these terms, how does your routine look like in, the, in a nutrition support unit for someone who is not into it but is a medical specialist with interest in, in nutrition? How does your routine look like? Well, I would say the routine hasn't, much, hasn't changed much, except from the fact that we are still short by about 20% of beds because in many departments, we only have single rooms now so as not to uh, to patients in contact for fear of one being infected. But otherwise, it's pretty much back to normal, mostly having patients referred after surgery, for example. Yeah, I was actually asking about, yeah, the normal. How do patients come to you? How do you screen them? Just for maybe some hospitals or clinical nutrition Uh, sorry, some clinics that are not already uh, applying clinical nutrition protocols to take an idea of of how um, a really developed clinical nutrition support unit looks like? Well, I think that's a very long question (laughs) and we're already past the 20 minutes. I, I can try a few words about the routine, you know? Okay. So my routine is particular because I run a nutritional support unit meaning that, for example, we're not going to go through screening and diagnosis of malnutrition because I would say that by definition, all patients referred to us are malnourished. But this is a way we chose to work in my hospital. In other hospitals, there are no dedicated beds. So the idea is that all the nursing staff makes the screening and the diagnosis with the help of the dietitians, of course. And those patients who need refeeding uh, will be visited by a nutritional support team that will then start the treatment, whether oral, antral, or parenteral. It's good to hear the, the best practices in medical nutrition. I wanted to, to ask you, because I know you are a very active member in ESPEN, and I've heard you are you are you'll be playing a, a new role in in the coming years. Can you explain us a bit? Well, I'm very honored to have been elected by the members of Espen as the next treasurer. That will start after the general assembly confirms the the vote on the 21st of September. I will succeed my friend uh, Jeliko Kresnaric from Croatia along with a new general secretary, who is Cristina Cuerda from Madrid, uh, will succeed Matthias Pirlich from Berlin. And we will be, Cristina and myself, working alongside Rocco Barazzoni, who is the chairman, 
All of us are being elected for four years, meaning that we will spend two years working with Rocco and following two years working with the new chairman or chairwoman of Espen, who will be elected two years from now. And this is an important position, not only because of the of the tasks at hand uh, running the uh, treasury of Espen, but also because chairman, general secretary and treasurer form the executive committee who makes all the decisions regarding the society, everything being, of course, confirmed by the council and the general assembly. But for me, it's an honor and a pleasure. And I'm looking really forward to to help Espen in its next moves. Good. We are also very happy you'll be playing this role and we are really sure that you'll be succeeding. So before we finalize, let me ask you one last question. What advice would you give to all these specialists starting uh, nowadays into clinical nutrition? What would be your word to them? I'm so happy to be working in clinical nutrition. The difficult thing is to convince colleagues, but also patients, about the importance of clinical nutrition. And I think that now we have more proofs than ever of the interest of clinical nutrition. The difficulty comes from the fact that in our countries, most malnourished patients have anorexia. And so they don't want to, one, they don't want to eat. Two, they've lost weight, but they were overweight before. So they're happy to have lost weight. So you need to convince them that, okay, you didn't lose fat mass, you lost fat-free mass, and you need to regain the, the, the fat-free mass you've lost. So it's very difficult to convince. And the other thing is, when you have a, a patient with an infection, the patient has a fever, you start the antibiotics, you will see the results the next day. When you have a malnourished patient, it will take weeks and sometimes months to bring back the patient to his or her previous weight. And so it's not, there is no real satisfaction for very short hospital stays. And so you need to convince colleagues. And the good thing is that, and I saw that in my hospital, is that we started with the thoracic surgeons and then the vascular surgeons, and they didn't believe in nutrition. And when they saw the effects of refeeding on the outcome of their surgeries, they got convinced. And I think it's, you know, one step at a time, you're able to convince people. And once you've convinced people, you have uh, allies. That's my main advice to our young colleagues who get started in clinical nutrition. Get allies, convince them. Good. Okay, thank you, Stefan, for your time today. It's been wonderful to have you and the pleasure to interview you. Thank you and hope to see you all in our new release episode of Font News. Thank you very much, dear Enric, and uh, I wish Font News a great life.